This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Uliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind, where we dive into all aspects of perinatal mental health and wellness related to conception, pregnancy, birth, loss, postpartum, and new parenthood. We raise the volume on these topics in hopes that someday everyone will have the support and information that they deserve before they need it. Please note this podcast is not a replacement for treatment by a professional or professional training. Welcome back to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. May is Maternal Mental Health Awareness Month, and Mom in Mind is dedicated to highlighting the lived experience of moms, partners, and families this month. We will also be celebrating our 100th episode of the Mom in Mind podcast on May 21st. And to honor that, we will share some of our own listeners' thoughts about their experiences and messages of hope. We're so honored and grateful to have you here with us on this podcast, especially for Maternal Mental Health Awareness Month. Today, we are talking with Christina Cowan about her experience through traumatic birth and a postpartum thyroid condition, as well as her path to healing. She's written an amazing book that includes her experience, other stories of lived experience, and really great information from experts in the field. She wrote When Postpartum Packs a Punch, and we will learn a bit about that today. Christina started writing when she was just five. Years later, she earned a master's degree in journalism from Northwestern University, and these days she covers mental health and women's issues. She lives in the Chicago area with her husband and two young children. And When Postpartum Packs a Punch is her first book. Let's meet Christina. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Kat. It's great to be here. I have been hearing quite a bit about your book, When Postpartum Packs a Punch, and I'm very, very excited to share it with the listeners. But what I'd love to start off with is just hearing from you and about your story and what even led to you writing a book like this. So yeah, please start wherever you'd like about your story. Sure, absolutely. So a little background on me. I'm a journalist by trade. I studied journalism school and graduate school, and I've been doing that for 20 years. <laughs> so when I got pregnant with my first child, that was, I had him in 2009 and I was doing other sorts of journalism when I was pregnant with him, very different from the book that I wrote about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. And so having him actually turned me down a different path, which ended up being a very good thing. I, I was not planning on writing this book at all, I can tell you, <laughs> when I was pre <laughs> pregnant with him. I had a great pregnancy with him. My husband and I 
always wanted two children. And so we wanted to have him pretty much at the time that we had him. It, it couldn't have been better for that time in our lives. And everything went very well physically with the pregnancy. It was perfect. I didn't have any complications. And I thought, boy, this is almost too easy. Mm. <laughs> and I did have some friends say that, oh, you know, who I had babies, if that, something doesn't go wrong during the pregnancy, something will after. And I'm not, you know, I'm just saying. <laughs> and okay. I thought, I, oh, you know, you know, that's motherhood for you, right? So, mm. so I moved through the pregnancy just fine. We were living in downtown Chicago and I would even walk to my OB visits. And that was nice as they got closer together and I got bigger uh, and I had him in early March of 2009. My OB was great. She suggested toward the end that because I had such a good run that why not induce? And we didn't know the gender. So she's saying induce the baby on Monday. I'll be on call. The baby's due Thursday. Shouldn't be a problem. You know, you're pretty advanced. I think you should get in and out of the hospital quickly you can move on with your life. So I thought that sounded great. I'm somewhat type A when it comes to my work, especially. So I thought that's perfect. I can have the baby. I'll be back to writing within a week. I'm going to hire a nanny, all that good stuff. And mm -hmm. things changed dramatically when I went into the hospital that Monday. I agreed to the induction. I was already in the early stages of labor when I went in, but they still hooked me up to Pitocin. I wasn't really familiar with Pitocin. I didn't do research on it, which in hindsight, I think that I should have. So they hooked me up and for the first several hours, it was fine. But I reached a point where I was in extreme pain from the contractions. It was almost as if I stepped over a threshold and they went from manageable to unbearable. Mm. So I asked for an epidural and that numbed me. Almost entirely. I mean, I've had no feeling from, you know, from the waist down. And so when it came time to push, it was extremely difficult for me. Mm -hmm. And I put it together that if you're numb, how can you push? And my son's head was sort of, it was big. And they said, you know, I was small frame to have a baby with a big head. Well, I don't know. I guess they didn't know that ahead of time. And he was sucking his thumb. I could not, I mean, I'd push and his head would come halfway out and then it would go back in. Mm -hmm. So after three hours of that, I was almost near total fatigue. So my OB said, why don't we try an intervention like forceps? And I said, okay, I didn't know what they were really even. I thought maybe like salad tongs. Well, mm -hmm. she brought them in and they were huge. And I thought, okay, that's interesting. But that's what we ended up using. And they worked instantly. Like she used them on one side and then the medical student helped her on the other and he came right out. But I ended up tearing mm -hmm. and I had a third degree tear and something else that I didn't really know could happen. I knew about episiotomies, but the hospital where I was didn't practice episiotomy. So they let me tear three degrees and I was fairly injured. I mean, she stitched yeah. me back together, but there was no explanation about what a tear involves, mm -hmm. the pain, all those sorts of things. So I left the hospital early as well. The hospital asked us to leave 12 hours early. So wow. I was injured. I was nursing. The nursing was the one thing that went great. Okay, I, was nursing, great. I was nursing fine. I got home though, and probably within a half a day of getting home, I couldn't go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And this was a big problem, very big problem. So they didn't make sure you could go to the bathroom before you left the hospital? No, that I could urinate, yes, but not to relieve my bowels. So uh -huh. 
Both of them shut down though. My bowels and my bladder shut down at home. One I think triggered the other. Mm-hmm. So I went into the ER when my son was three days old, mm-hmm. probably around midnight. And the receptionist in there said, why are you in here with a newborn? He could die. And, oh, my oh my gosh. And my husband was parking the car and I thought, I mean, I just started crying. And I think she realized what she had said. And, you know, I let her know. I said, this is my first baby and we don't have any family here yet. And I feel like I'm going to die. I need help, you know. So she sort of retraced her steps and found us a private room. And someone came and helped me learn to pump milk because I thought, well, if I'm with a doctor and the baby wakes up, he has no food. And I didn't want him to bottle feed, not yet. So that part went okay. And then the doctors came in probably after we were in there, probably three and a half hours. And Mm. they helped me a little bit, but said, you know, you're going to have to go to your doctor in the morning and have her hook you up to a catheter. They were able to drain my bladder in the hospital. And they said my bladder was distended. It was holding more than two times the normal amount of liquid. How was that very painful? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was worse than the birth. I couldn't imagine that something would be in. I mean, I had the epidural, so I didn't feel a lot, but it was excruciating pain. This podcast is supported by Starglow Media's Mysteries About True Histories. From the creators of the hit top-ranking kids educational podcast in the world, Who Smarted, the Emmy-nominated Nat Geo Disney Plus's Brain Games and Netflix's Brainchild, comes Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, or math in which kids ages six and up can hear humorous and educational stories that follow two best friends, Max and Molly, while they go on adventures through time, solving puzzles, hidden equations, talking about history, and making learning cool. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras's ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and more. When I drive my son to school in the morning, we listen to these episodes that fit perfectly in our commute, with the episodes being about 15 minutes long. And this podcast is right up my son's alley because he loves to solve problems and happens to love math and the types of punny jokes that Max likes to tell. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. So they relieved me a little bit. I went home and then... I did see my OB. She helped me. She hooked me up to a Foley catheter and sent me home with that for three days. I took some enemas and that all finally worked. So by the time Noah was, my son's name is Noah, by the time he was 10 days old, I felt some physical relief. I felt better. 
I could walk normally. (laughs) That's a long time. It is a long time. And, you know, through all of that though, and I don't remember, I had the baby with me the whole time. I mean, I was Mm -hmm. not letting him out of my sight and I kept nursing Mm -hmm. him even I had this Foley catheter around me and I had the baby on me and, <laughs> you know, it feels very primal and, and like, mm-hmm. almost like you're an animal, you know, and I mean, there's some beauty in that, but also it was very strange to me. Yeah. So can I ask you a question about that period of time? You mentioned a couple of things that I heard. One, that you walked into the ER and thought you were going to die. That's a big feeling to have. Is that at that, how, what was your like emotional state like throughout this? Yeah. So when I got home from the hospital, I already started to feel uneven. And I thought it was because of my hospital experience. I very much felt like they kicked us out. And Mm. this is a great hospital in downtown Chicago that should never have done that. And I felt like I had no voice and here I am at home and I felt uneven at first. And then when I got to the ER, I mean, as my pain increased, I was terrified that I was going to die from it, that no one would be able to help me go to the bathroom and that I would leave the baby, that I would strand him without a mom. That was the big image in my head going into the ER, that I was going to die, that no one was going to help me and that the baby would be, you know, without a mom because I had never been down this road. I didn't know, you know, there was so many unknowns. Now I felt a little better after leaving the R, I felt a lot better when my OB said, you're fine. You know, we don't see this often. We usually see women incontinence. You know, if if they Mm -hmm. tear, they usually have incontinence. Well, I had the opposite. So, Mm -hmm. but she wasn't alarmed. She didn't think I was going to die. So when she thought I wasn't going to die, I thought, okay, well, I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. so once I felt physically like I could be okay, and I was okay, then mentally I started to crumble, which is, I guess, you know, it's to be expected. It didn't occur to me in the moment. But as I look back, I thought, well, I had birthed, that was traumatic. Mm -hmm. All of that, everything I just described to you was birth trauma. I had wonderful support from my husband and my family and my friends. However, I felt traumatized by what happened in the hospital. And I felt like I fell short as a mom. Like the first thing I did as a mom was a huge mistake. Mm. And, you know, Noah had a couple of gashes on his face from the forceps, which they healed immediately. But as soon as I saw him, his face Mm -hmm. was bleeding. And that was my first, you know, my first image of my baby. And, you know, you think, back to it and you think, well, it's not so bad. But in that moment, it was horrifying to me. So yeah, it was like a nightmare. And then as you pull away from it, you think, well, that's not fair. My first experience with childbirth was nightmarish. And it took me a long time to reconcile that. So, you know, I was crying a lot. That's how I knew something wasn't right. I cried about everything. I mean, people would call to see how I was doing and I would cry you know, I was out on Michigan Avenue and there was a little girl that waved to me and I started crying and I came back to my apartment and my husband said, what is wrong with you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like at first he thought, you know, what's going on? And that's how I knew. And it, I liken it to an alien invading my body because I mm-hmm. felt like the old me flew away on a kite or something. And I was left with this weird alien feeling 
And then I started getting the intrusive images probably a few days after the crying. And together, you know, with both, I thought, this is just not right. I need to talk to someone. You know, I didn't hide these things. I told my husband, I told my mother-in-law. My own mom died when I was 15, so I did not have her, which that was certainly part of the experience for me. I knew she wasn't going to be there, obviously, but going through the trauma, I needed her even more, you know. Yeah. But I was open about what I experienced. And then I called my OB and I said, look, I'm having these weird images and I'm crying. And can you do something to help me? And, you know, again, she was very receptive and said, hey, there's more than you would think from patients. We can get you to a talk therapist. And if you'd be open to antidepressants, you can take them. The one she suggested was sertraline, you know, which is the generic of Zoloft. So I did some research and I thought, well, I mean, it can't hurt. I'll try it. And within 10 days of starting the sertraline, the crying spell stopped. And to my disbelief, I thought there's no way a pill is going to make me stop crying. Yeah, right. (laughs) But it did. And I needed that then because I'm relatively impatient and I didn't want to just deal with the crying. The therapy also was a huge help. I mean, it it let me just say everything that was in my mind and get everything out and walk through it and acknowledge it. And so those two things together were very effective. And also, and I say this in the book that maybe an informal part of the therapy was telling my story to all my friends and Mm -hmm. family who would listen. And I didn't lie and say, oh, it's wonderful or hide it, you know. I had a little bit of shame, I guess, but I thought, you know, if you're not going to, if you're going to hold me accountable for this, then, you know, it's probably not worth staying in touch with someone who would, mm-hmm. <laughs> would feel ashamed or something of me. Yeah, that's a great point. So, and I felt, you know, what, what made me do that was sort of, I attributed to this just feeling of it's either I, you know, deal with any kind of shame or I hide it. And I didn't know what would happen if I hit it. I wanted my baby to be okay. And I wanted myself to be okay for him. My instinct right away was to protect him. And mm-hmm. and I did it the only way I knew how to. So now I always encourage, you know, moms and dads to find at least one person, you know, you don't have to yeah. tell everybody what's going on, but one person that you trust. And that makes mm-hmm. all the difference, I think, because the person that you trust is going to help you. Yeah, this is not an uncommon experience, unfortunately. And I just appreciate so much you being open and willing to talk about it so that people can feel heard. Yeah, I'm happy to share my story. And I feel like, you know, it's taking an unlovely experience and turning it into something good that helps other people. And I think that's the best that we can do, you know. Absolutely. Can I ask another question about just your process and getting out of all of this? So you had medication and you had therapy. How long did it take until you started feeling better? And how did you notice you were feeling better? Sure. So I put it in two stages because I actually ended up developing Hashimoto's disease after Noah was born. Now, as to whether they're all along, I'll never know because my thyroid levels weren't checked until he was almost a year old. So I started to feel very good after I started the medication. So within like two weeks, the crying stopped and I could actually enjoy him. So he was probably about six weeks old and I loved it. I loved having the baby. You know, I still had some intrusive images, but it got better and better. 
And then when he was about six months old, I got my first period and it lasted for about a month. And I thought, well, that's weird. I'm still nursing him. And doesn't nursing stop the period? I don't know. So I talked to my OB and she said, well, doesn't, you know, sometimes you can be nursing and get your period, but it shouldn't last a month. So we went back and forth for a while and I thought, well, maybe I'm, maybe, you know, and then I started to feel sad, not sad on the level that I did when he was first born, but just kind of low and extremely fatigued. He was a great sleeper. So I'd sleep with him 12 hours at night. He would nap long naps. I would nap during the day and I could not stay awake. And I thought something is wrong. And Sure enough, I had my thyroid levels checked and my thyroid was very low. And then I went to an endocrinologist and had more tests. And we found out that I had Hashimoto's disease, which is an autoimmune disorder where your thyroid is, you know, you're basically underproducing. So you're hypothyroid. Mm-hmm. Hypothyroidism can act like depression, can make you have a low mood, very similar to the symptoms of postpartum depression. And I thought, Mm -hmm. boy, I wonder if this was feeding into things Mm. when he was first born. But my endocrinologist said, it's good you went off the antidepressants because we might not have known (laughs) to Mm. check for this, you know. So I really felt back to myself when my son was about a year and a half. And I say really because... I needed my thyroid to be fixed to sort of complete the circle, you know, mm-hmm. having that be off made me feel off. So, yeah. you know, and now I see the value of checking women, no matter what age you are. I was 34 when I had Noah and my OB said, we didn't check you because usually women who are hypothyroid are in their fifties. And you know, now we know better. Now there's so much coming out about women much younger than that who have Hashimoto's. Yeah. So it's really important to check the thyroid levels before anything, because if that's off, you have to address that before anything else. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. I hear about thyroid issues quite often in my you know, meeting with women. And it it is implicated in quite a few things and quite a few symptoms that they're experiencing. If it's high or low, hypo or hyperthyroid, it really does a number on people. I think it should be a standard. You check this, whether you have a history of it or not during pregnancy and postpartum for a couple of times. Yeah, right. I agree with that. I think that would be wonderful if we could get to that point. Yeah, well, maybe, you know, people can advocate hearing what you're describing and what we're talking about now that people can advocate to get the thyroid checked um, just as a rule out. I think it's important. Yeah, I do too. In all of your process, what led you to think about writing this book, When Postpartum Packs a Punch? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier that I wanted to get right back to work and I ended up taking almost a year off from any kind of writing. I just felt I needed the break. You know, I couldn't stay not writing for long because mm. it's what I'm wired to do. So as I, I mean, early on, probably when Noah was a week or two old, I thought, well, if I can come to a point at where I can write about this, I want to, and I want to help other people. And as I got healthier and better, I thought, well, I could write some stories. And my incentive to do that was because, you know, when I was on the day-to-day stuff, when Noah was early on and I was feeling very low, I was looking for things to read. I wanted to hear from other moms. I wanted them to say, I had this. This is what I did. This is how I got better. You're going to be fine. 
And there wasn't a book out there. And I love to read books. I did find a blog or two that helped, but I wanted more. I wanted something I could hold in my hands that I could highlight. And so when, you know, it came to the point where I was going to write about this, I thought, well, I don't know if I should do stories or, you know, some articles and pitch them to publications or I could write a book. And I talked anecdotally at first to people I knew. Mm-hmm. I had so much information just from them. I thought, well, if I widen it to a group of women I don't know, I bet you I could write a book. So I thought, well, I can do it. I can do the writing. I can do the reporting. And so I ended up writing the book that I wished I had mm-hmm. at my fingertips when I went through it. That's amazing. I just love that. When people's passions and their skill set intersects with things like this that happen in their life and then they do something with it like you've done, I just think is so powerful. I'm not a journalist. You know, I can't write the book that you can write. And the fact that, you know, you're better, you got through it and you're so passionate about, you know, getting the word out and making sure people have good and correct information is so amazing to me. And like you said before, this is not the book you had imagined yourself writing, but here you are in this life circumstance and your skill set supports you to be able to get the word out in a way that not many people can. And it's just so powerful. I'm really excited for people to read it. Thank you. Yeah, I hope it helps. <laughs> so what can people expect in the book? How is it set up? Yeah, so There's a few things to know about the book. The center of this book is story. It's the stories of moms and dads in the U.S. and several in the U.K. who have encountered perinatal mood and anxiety disorders of one sort or another. It's the stories of them encountering those disorders and then how they sought treatment, how they healed and recovered and you know, what they're doing now, how they feel now, that sort of thing. So I do that throughout the book. And that's the lifeblood of the book. And Mm -hmm. I really wanted this to be for everybody, for parents, grandparents, friends to give as a gift, or to read for the knowledge. I also wanted it to be for providers and experts and researchers. So the book is pretty dense with, you know, good information. It's not written at all, um, you know, in a medical way. So it's very easy to read. You know, the best research I could find and the most recent, I mean, of course, now we know more. This was published last year and, but it's a snapshot of the research that's out there, the best research I could find. And it's filled with good experts like Wendy Davis from PSI, John Abramowitz, who is, I think he's the forerunning expert on OCD in the country, if not in the world. Mm-hmm. I talked to him a bunch for my chapter on OCD. And just the sheer spine of the book, it's set up. First, I look at the different mood disorders. So, you know, I give a chapter or so to each of those. Postpartum anxiety and depression is in one chapter. Mm -hmm. Postpartum OCD has a chapter all to itself. Postpartum PTSD has a chapter. And I also look in there at birth trauma and just trauma in general. And that's actually the second chapter because I feel like there is an element of trauma in all these PMADs. I wanted trauma to be another theme in the book that people understand better, relate to. So I actually restructured the book while I was writing it to bring trauma up front. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also do a chapter on psychosis and I look at that. 
And then I have a chapter on what other countries are doing in terms of maternal mental health care, especially the UK. Mm-hmm. I touch a little bit on France and some of the research there. I have a chapter for dads as well, because I felt that was important. Men experience mental illness differently than women. And I had a number of people tell me that while I was writing the book that I had to do something for men. And I thought, okay, I guess I'd better. (laughs) (laughs) So I did that. And then, you know, I have a chapter on, you know, how women heal different forms of treatment and healing and things like that. And then I also weave my story throughout. My story is not the focal point, but I had to include it because it's why I wrote the book. So I'd like to think there's something in there for everybody. It's a very approachable book. And, you know, it has good research at the core of the human element. So I love that. I love that you've brought those two things together. Well, it's more than two things, but (laughs) to really have the personal experience, hear the personal experiences, the lived experience, and have that researched part to back it up. Because we were talking about before, I I really think it's powerful to not only hear a story and see, like if you're the mom reading or the therapist reading, and not only see yourself reflected or see your clients reflected, but then have this research to back it up that says, yes, it's not just you. This has been researched and this is what we found. And it's another way to say you're not alone. And you have both sides of that, the personal experience and the research and what better combination. Yeah, I fully agree with that. While I was doing the reporting, I mentioned the chapter on OCD. I had interviewed John Abramowitz. He's in North Carolina. And he was sharing with me that in his research, he found that almost 100% of new parents, that includes moms and dads, will experience intrusive images after the birth of a child. And you know, that to me was incredible. And that was you know, another point on the continuum of healing for me because I thought, well, I had these and I felt horrible to have these intrusive images. Yeah. I never invited them. I mean, nobody ever invites them, but you feel somehow that you're to blame for them because they're coming into your mind. Mm-hmm. And he proved with his research that they're almost universal. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's just makes me feel so much better. Right. right? <laughs> you know? Even how many years out of having, you know, my first child and it, I loved hearing that. Mm. So that makes me think of all, you must have had many moments like that while writing this book and how healing it is just in, first of all, just to write um, your own story and your own stuff, but to be getting this really into the nooks and crannies of things about your own experience, which you're then in turn sharing with other people. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics, depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not 
my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Yeah, it was really, it was wonderful. I'm grateful that I had the time and ability to do this and to put it together, you know. Yeah, it's a lot of work. I know you spent some time on this for sure. And I'm assuming because of your journalist background, you do things pretty carefully. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I've been an editor as well. So I not only wrote the whole book, I mean, I had an editor from my publisher, they edited it as well. But you know, I went back and forth with them quite a bit, because I wanted this as perfect as I could get it. Now, nothing is perfect in life. But I mean, if there's a typo in this book, I will be chagrined because (laughs) (laughs) I wanted it to be as perfect as it could possibly be, because I'm trained in that, you know? Yeah. I didn't want any errors for the reader and I didn't want them to be misled in any way. And, you know, I was extremely careful and diligent in my work and I felt like I owe that to my reader, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And to all of us, I mean, there's so many people who are now interested in learning about perinatal mental health and what happens for moms and women. And, you know, there are of course going to be stories and anecdotal things that can help explain what's going on. But when you have this lovely combination of the lived experience, plus like a reference book on some level that, I mean, that people can go to and like, oh, what does this John guy do? I'm going to go check out his research. You're giving people leads into other places that they can also go and find more information. No, that's right. That's one of my goals. (laughs) So powerful. I mean, there's so much great stuff in the book and from your own personal experience, what from your experience in the book that you've written, what are the things you would really like people to know, mothers and partners and providers to know about perinatal mental health? Sure. So there are a couple of things. I've mentioned this before, but for moms and dads and partners, just, well, I mean, the person experiencing the perinatal mood and anxiety disorder should find one person to help him or her And that person should be someone that they trust. And it's not always your spouse or partner. It's not always your mom. Like in my case, my mom wasn't there. I did trust my husband. I had a cousin and my husband that I told sort of everything. And I knew that they would never betray my trust. So if you can find just one person 
I think that's the key to getting better because you you tell that one person and you'll feel better. You can be honest with them and then they'll say, okay, what can we do to help you get better? Should we call your OB or should we call a therapist? And, you know, I just don't want people to think that it's black and white. Like you have to tell your mom or you have to tell, you know, your spouse or partner it's not always the case. I mean, some women I interviewed said, I told my coworker because I couldn't tell my parents because they would not understand. And, you know, it's not a one size fits all process. So that's really important for providers and the mom, the person who has the babies, you know, check thyroid levels on that woman. Because like I said, you you can develop an autoimmune disorder related to your thyroid and not even know it. I had never experienced thyroid problems that I knew of before having kids. My thyroid levels were, apparently they were fine if they check them during pregnancy, but they went haywire after. So the thyroid is really important. And then sort of the last thing is this element of hope. PMADs are fully curable. They're nothing to be ashamed of. And nowadays, I feel like we have more and more better and better treatments. So you can certainly tailor the treatment to your needs. So if you hear a woman say, well, I had postpartum anxiety and I took this medication or saw this therapist, that might not be right for you. You have to go with what your body and your mind are telling you. And you can do that in this day and age. We have so many resources available. And and I know some areas have fewer resources than others, but mm-hmm. if you do the, the research, I think you can find something that will be tailored to what you need. Yeah, that is fantastic support. And I love that, you know, you got better, you found your way through your book, you're helping people find their way through and understand what's going on. And the messages that you have here are just fantastic that people will and can get better with the right kind of help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and telling us about the book. I'm going to have links to all things you. People can connect to you and can go get your book on Amazon. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. And for those of you who are listening, please do go check out this book. It is an amazing resource. So thank you so much for being on, Christina. Thank you so much, Kat. This was great. I really love how Christina has brought together her own lived experience and others lived experience with some good, solid research and information from experts in the field. I love this in particular because that's also one of the things that we try and do here on the podcast. It's just such a nice balance to be able to hear what really goes on for people and then to have some of that, some solid information to back it up and to explain a little bit about what's going on. So I highly suggest that you guys go on Amazon and get When Postpartum Packs a Punch and for sure leave a review for that book so that more people can find it. If you want to connect with Christina, go to her website, christinacowan.com. She's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And I will put all of those links in the show notes for you to be able to connect with her. And you'll also be able to find information about this episode on the Mom in Mind Facebook page, as well as on our Twitter and Instagram. If you guys want to connect with us on a deeper level, be able to share some information and talk about the things that we discuss on the podcast, go to the Mom and Mind Connection Facebook group. Thank you so much. And until next time. Thank you for joining us today. Please share this podcast. Together, we can support moms and families so that no one has to deal with this alone. Come connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Mom and Mind.
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.